This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Pretty easy to find. Right at the beginning. Page 1. All right. uh, Last night we started talking about the fear of man. Tried to introduce the concepts last night. What do we mean when we're talking about fear of man? And we saw... Uh, that it's more than just fear, how we normally think of fear. It's a broader concept. We should think of words like reverence, awe, uh, trust, worship are included in fear. And we talked about how we, we, we do this towards people rather than towards God. We should fear God, but instead we fear people. And we talked about three main categories that we often suffer from the fear of man that we called shame, fear, rejection, fear, and danger or threat, fear. These are things negatively that we we try to avoid. Uh, We can flip those around, though, and we can say them positively. We also talked about how we crave, we seek praise, acceptance, affirmation, safety. So shame, rejection, And danger can be flipped around into praise, acceptance, and safety. That was what we talked about. And Jeremiah, we saw, gave us an image to kind of anchor our minds in this concept of what we we seek to be, which is to be, you can either be a shrub in the desert or a tree by the river. Shrub in the desert, tree by a river. Uh, We reflected further on that, and we saw in the New Testament that the gospel invites us to be rooted in the love of God for us in Christ. And we saw that the foundation for that blessed life that Jeremiah was talking about uh, is is indeed Christ, is the gospel. And so what we're going to do starting now is we're going to try to start to uh, flesh that out. And what I want to do is to lay some groundwork uh, in the next few sessions. So I, I like to take any opportunity I can to talk about the grass in my backyard. So we recently uh, destroyed our backyard through sad, for, for good reasons. Um, but then the, the grass was totally dead. And we needed to, we, need, we wanted to put grass back. But we didn't just start by throwing grass seed down on the destroyed ground. We first had to fix the, the, uh, the drainage. So we dug big deep trenches through the backyard laid down a whole bunch of pipe to get the water out of the backyard. Then we fixed the sprinklers that we broke in the process. <laughs> and then we, we rented a rototiller. We rototilled the backyard to make it all the ground all nice and soft. And then we actually moved all the dirt, put down some gopher wire, because we've got gophers where we live. Then we put all the dirt back, and then we started watering, and we laid down seed, and we watered and watered and watered. And there's grass now, which is great. But there's a we don't you don't start just by throwing the seed on the ground. You gotta do some, lay some groundwork. You gotta prepare it. And so that's what we're gonna do the next four times, is I wanna start laying some groundwork of preparing our minds to think about some categories of how we can, we can know, uh, how we can deal with, with the fear of man. Uh, I've got a couple coworkers who are a little crazy. Uh, they, they climb up mountains, perfectly good mountains, and then jump off. One of them in like a squirrel suit, like she, she went to France recently, or Italy maybe, 
and for the sole purpose of climbing mountains and jumping off with the squirrel. And she, she sent a picture of herself, like, I got really close to a wall today. It was great. It's like, my goodness, don't do that. And then another coworker, he, he paraglides. Paraglides? He used to hang glide, but now he paraglides. Um, and so with that in mind, I kept thinking about like the next four sessions as like we're going on a journey together. We're going to be hiking up a mountain. It's going to be a little arduous, maybe a little, a little some work. Uh, it may not feel always entirely related, but we got to make the journey to climb to the peak of the mountain to gain the perspective that we're looking for. And then we're going to jump off in application and uh, it'll be great. And so we're going to walk through some truths to help reorient our minds, uh, reorient our perspective on ourself, upon God, upon people. Because um, otherwise, we'll be trying to navigate with the map upside down. Uh, I don't know if anyone's seen Arthur Christmas. Mm-hmm. Arthur Christmas, anyone? It's a favorite in our home. Watch it every Christmas. But one of my favorite parts is uh, you've got Arthur. And he's sitting in the sleigh with with Grandpa Santa. And Grandpa Santa is explaining to him how he navigates. He says, well, I just just take the North Star as my fixed point. And I was like, that's an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) If you try to use an airplane as a North Star, you're going to get lost real quick. And so Jeremiah, uh, here in Genesis, we're going to start flipping the map right side up. And we're going to start with creation. Okay? Start with creation. We are created. Let us pray once more together and then look to Genesis 1. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word once again and to to draw near to you. We praise you in these songs that we just sang. We thank you so much, God, for your mercy towards us in Jesus. And we ask, God, that you would open our eyes once again as as we look to your word. Would you be with us? Would you help me? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 1, let's read from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, uh, to begin, I want us to imagine 
imagine for a moment, keep your eyes open this time, but imagine you walk into a hospital, you walk into a hospital, you've got a white coat on, you bring a clipboard with you, and you just start walking into people's rooms. Hello, ma'am, how are you doing this morning? What seems to be the problem? <laughs> you start asking them questions, you, you prescribe them medicine, you ask them for their life story. Uh, then someone else walks in, the actual doctor walks into the room. It's like, excuse me, uh, who are you? Why are you here in this, in this patient's room? And you say, oh, well, you know, I, I consider myself a doctor. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a doctor. I, I can be whatever I want to be. I identify as a doctor. Uh, there's a movie, Catch Me If You Can. Um, there's a con artist who did this. This is, this is not lawful. <laughs> do not do that. Uh, but we have this idea that in the day and age that we live, uh, the day and age in which you are growing up, that you can be whatever you want to be. You should be whatever you want to be. And this has been the message of the world for a while. I feel like it's slightly different. I feel like when I was growing up, the idea was more, you, you can become whatever you want to become. Um, like, if you work real hard, you can be the president. That was, that was what I heard lots growing up. Like, that was still an ideal. <laughs> um, but now it feels like it's more, you can just be whoever you want to be right now. Uh, boy or girl, you decide. You can be whatever you want. Follow your heart. Disney's been, Disney's been preaching that for some time. Follow your heart. Be what you want. Do what you want. You know better than your parents. You know better than the elders of the village. You do what you want. You are what matters. I don't know if anyone here is Lord of the Rings fans. Yeah? I, I didn't go back and check and see if this was actually true in the book. But in the movie, I remember there's this scene. Aragorn is talking to an individual. I won't say who. Spoiler uh, for spoiler problems, but um, they're, they're concerned whether Frodo was still alive. And then Aragorn says, what does your heart tell you? And the other individual responds, that Frodo is alive. Yes, Frodo is alive. As though your heart telling you that makes it more true. It doesn't. Or another famous movie, uh, I won't say who, but he says, Luke, <laughs> I am your father. <laughs> no! And then he responds, search your feelings. You know this to be true. Right? As though searching your feelings confirms the thing to be true or not. I'm here to tell you this morning that, th that just because you think a thought, that doesn't make it true. Just because you think a thought, that doesn't make it true. Controversial. Maybe you cannot be whatever you want to be. <laughs> How's that for motivational advice? You cannot be whatever you want to be. Work hard, please. Have dreams. That's great. But we take our dreams and we lay them at God's feet and we entrust them to him. And I can tell you, I will never be an artist. I'm just, I'm just not ever get, it's not in the cards. I can't picture the thing and draw it. All of my, yeah. Sandy knows, none of my drawings look like, look like real things. Um, more important to what we're talking about here today, though, is that the way we think of ourselves and the, the way that we think of other people is not that important. That's not the question we should be asking. 
the que- if we want to be free from living for other people, free from living under the fear of shame, rejection, danger, we must learn to ask a different question. We must focus on what God thinks of us, not what other people think of us. And so we're going to step back this morning, get our bearings, get the map facing the right way. And I want to convince you of this one thing for the morning is that what God thinks of me, what God thinks of me, what does God think of me, is the question we should be asking. Okay? What God thinks of us is what matters for a few reasons. Reason number one, God defines who we are. God defines who we are. Verses 26 and 27. God's view of us is what matters because he defines who we even are. We are made in his image. We are not God. Amen? We are not God. Thank you, Kay. You're the one that said amen there. This may seem obvious, but it is worth saying. We are not God. We were made. There are two categories of things that exist. Things that are made and things that are not made. Right? God is the only one that occupies the first category of things that are not made. John chapter 1, it says that Jesus was the one that made all things that were made. Everything that's in the made category was made by God. God is the only one that was not made. I almost said in the universe, but it's not just things in the universe, right? There's also angels. They were made. They're in the made category, made by God. And I want to tell you that we did not just happen. The, the universe didn't just boom, happen out of nothing. Well, it did, but not on its own. <laughs> uh, there, there is a, a world that exists, not nothingness. Matter was brought into being. Okay, we, we were made. Uh, we are not God. Look at chapter 3 of Genesis. Chapter 3, verse 5, we see the temptation of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And note that the original temptation was to be God, was to think of yourself like God. Verse 5, the devil said to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of this, the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The trick was they actually were like God. We'll talk about that in a second. But the temptation was to be more than that. You can actually be God. You can, you can be on par with him. You can be at his level. Verse 6, what does Eve do? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So Eve decided to make up her own mind about what was right and wrong. That was the temptation, and that was the fall, to be God rather than to simply be like God. And the same temptation happens to us every day. Many of our struggles, more than we admit, I I would suggest. I want to ask you, during maybe during your prayer time, small groups together, someone asks you, how is your week? How can I pray for you? What are you struggling with? 
Have you ever responded and said, you know, I've been contending with God for supremacy this week. If you could just pray for me for that. We don't often think of it that way and we don't describe it that way. But that's often what it is. Uh, we, we want to sit on his throne. We, we contend with God for supremacy in a couple different ways. We'll talk about two. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is we want to be the deciders. We want to decide what's true. We think I should be able to understand everything that's true or not. If it, I don't understand it, it can't be true. Um, we don't like the idea of authority. Like Eve, we want to make up the rules. It's been often said uh, the, it, the problem is not just that we're lawbreakers, which we are, but that we want to be lawmakers. We want to be the one writing the rule book. Um, we, we think that reason alone can determine what things are true. Or nowadays, we think that we can have our own version of the truth. It's my truth. You can have your truth. This is my truth. I will all exist in our little individual silos of truth. Um, but that, that doesn't work. It's not true. <laughs> um, and we also think that if it doesn't make sense to us, it cannot be true. Uh, I, I struggle with this one. I like to understand things, and it's a hindrance sometimes. I really like understanding things. I don't like when things don't make sense. Um, but uh, it's good to, to seek the truth, and it's good to try to understand things. Uh, but then it's it's arrogant to say that I have I am the gate of truth. <laughs> um, we should expect that uh, infinite God that created us and this world, there's going to be some things that are beyond us. There's going to be some things that we don't quite understand. So we are not the authority. We are not the judge. We take God. We need to take God at His word. When we don't, we're contending with Him for supremacy. Okay. We are not God. We, we don't get to decide. Also, another way that we pretend to be God is that we, we try to get the recognition, the praise that is only due to him. We talked about this a bit yesterday, uh, but we, we want praise. We want the glory that comes from man. When we, when we do something nice for someone, when we serve, when we work, it's not just that we want other people to be blessed for our work. Um, we want to be blessed for our work. We want them to bless us for our work, not just to say thank you. We want them to say, you're amazing. <laughs> you're awesome. You're the best. Uh, we don't. Another way we see this is that we don't just want to be good at stuff. We want to be the best at stuff. We're competitive. I remember reading or hearing about, uh, it was a hearing, it was a podcast, I think. I couldn't find it. But it was about Olympians and how some of the saddest people in the world are the second place people at the Olympics. The person that, that gets the silver medal. There was a study of like pictures, I think, like on the podium, the first place person, the second place person, and the third place person. First place is always ecstatic. But the, and the third is pretty happy because they just snuck in. But the second is just the worst because you feel like you could have made it. You could have been the best, but you weren't. <laughs> you lost. Um, and I think they even tracked some of those people afterwards for years and found that there was a legitimate amount of sadness that occurred for them coming in second place. I may have made that up, but I think that was true. Um, and so we, the, the, it feels true. It's my truth. <laughs> um, 
And so much of this, much of our desire, much of our fear of man comes from this, our desire to be honored, esteemed, praised. And so God is God, friends, and we are not. Why don't you say that with me? God is God, and I am not. I say that to myself sometimes. When there's things I don't understand, things I cannot control, things that I'm fearful of, this phrase helps me. God is God, and I am not. I don't get to decide what's right and wrong. I don't get to decide uh, what's just and unjust. I am not in control of my circumstances. I do not exist to be worshipped. I exist to worship. Turn with me to Isaiah, would you? The book of Isaiah, chapter 40. This is a good chapter for the soul as you think about who God is and who we are and our smallness before him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. We'll read to to verse 24. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him, who taught God the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All the nations are like a drop. From a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Did you not? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its habitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither. The tempest carries them off like stubble. We're like the dust on the scales. You go to Safeway, find some, find some apples, put them on the scale. You bring your little air compressor, like tss, tss, get that dust off the scales. You don't do that. The dust doesn't matter. The apples are what matter. We are not God. And yet, we are like God somehow. 
We are like God somehow. In Genesis 1, it says that we were made in his image. This is amazing. (laughs) Human beings were made like God somehow. As we go through chapter 1 and you read, God, after he creates each thing, God says it was good. It was good. It was good. At the creates man, it was very good. At the, at the end of his creation, nothing else was made in God's image. Not the sun, not the land, not the plants, not the animals. Nothing else was made in God's image except human beings. And people of many theologians and philosophers have asked, like, what exactly is the image of God? Is it intelligence or language or relationships or morality? It doesn't tell us exactly what it is here to be the Im- to be made in God's image. Um, it's obviously something unique, something special. It sets us apart from the rest of creation. Uh, I kind of I always kind of wish like you would explain it a bit more what that means, uh, but it doesn't say. Uh, but we can say it this way. Being made in God's image means that we're like God somehow. (laughs) It is maybe not super helpful. We're made like God somehow. That alone is remarkable. Diving into it a bit, some aspects of it. I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a few things. But one aspect of it is relational. Relational. We can know God personally. Think about that. Goats can't do that. They, They don't know God personally. Lizards, the great, cannot know God personally. We, we can. God made us to know him. We see in, in the garden, God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them, and I will go further, for the purpose of having a relationship with us. God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. We, we are not just a body. We have a soul. We have a spirit. You might say we are a soul in a body. (laughs) We are not just this body. Um, God created us so that we would know him. He created a universe so that he he could create a world, so that he could create people in the world to know us personally, so that we would know him. So Genesis chapter 1 is just an outpouring of pure grace of God creating us. Another thing about the relational aspect, look with me at verse 27. He created us to know him personally, but he also created us with gender. It says that here in verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I find that fascinating that he says that here. Gender is an aspect of being made in God's image. These these statements are in parallel. In the image of God, male and female. We didn't invent gender. God invented gender. And may I say that being confused about one's gender is a deeply troubling experience. That's a deeply troubling experience for someone to go through because it strikes at the core, the heart of of who they are, how God made that individual. It's harmful enough for for an individual to be confused about this, and it's worse when this confusion is praised and normalized by society. But that's how he made us, male and female, relational, to know him 
and male and female. And also, another aspect of being made in God's image is to be made with a sense of right and wrong. He created us with a sense of right and wrong. Romans 2, we won't turn there at the moment, but Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, talks about our conscience. uh, That we have a conscience that affirms us inside that says yes or no, right or wrong. That there is a law that's written on our hearts. Even if someone has never walked into a church, someone grows up on some remote island, they have a concept in their hearts of what is right and wrong. The law, some law of God that is written on their hearts. And we all we all experience this, right, in what we call the conscience. It condemns us when we sin, and it affirms us when we do something right. That comes from God. That comes from being made in God's image. When a tiger attacks another tiger in the forest, we don't call that murder, <laughs> right? That's not murder. We all know this. Uh, but a, a person killing another person, that's different. We know that that's called murder. So relational, moral Dignity is another aspect. We were made with dignity. Being made in God's image grants us dignity. We bear the image of God. That's remarkable. We are, in fact, not grasshoppers. (laughs) In comparison to God, right, he says things like that. We are like a drop in the bucket. Insignificant. But from from another vantage point, we bear his image, and so that, that gives us great dignity. Psalm 8 is a passage to jot down to look at that, where David reflects on God's majesty and how amazing it is that this glorious God that, that we read about from Isaiah 6, holy, 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 would care about us. That's significant. So friends, God defines you. God defines us. We cannot think of ourselves our relationships, our life correctly without knowing that I am a man or a woman that has been made in God's image. He is the one that we have to look to to understand ourselves. And others, others don't get to define you. Other people at school, other people at work, other people in life don't get to define you. And they will try, right? The world, history, uh, school campuses all around are filled with people that are trying to dehumanize you, trying to treat you as less human than you are, less human than themselves, create categories. But no one is more human than you. We are not less human than someone else. Names that other people call us do not define us. They will answer to God, and you will answer to God. God is the one with whom we must do business. He tells us, who we are. That's the first point. The second point is that God decides what we do. God defines who we are, and second, God decides what we do. Look at verse 28 again. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. God is the one who gives us our mandate, our mission, our role, our task in the world. Uh, we are his subjects. He is, he is the king. Right? You might ask, what are we here for? What is, what is life about? What is the meaning of life? Douglas Adams got it wrong. It's not 42, <laughs> if you're familiar. Uh, are we here just to reproduce, to expand the species, go to Mars, 
Are we here just to have fun, dancing through life, skimming the surface? What are we here for? Well, read the instructions, right? <laughs> got to read the instructions. Uh, Lego movie, he got it right. Where's my instructions? Uh, you got to read the, read the instructions. You got to imagine a sculptor. A sculptor makes a vase. A buyer comes in, he says, oh, that's a great boomerang. I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> and he picks it up. And he starts, he begins to like throw it as a boomerang. The buyer's like, no, <laughs> or the seller, don't do that. It's not a boomerang. It's a vase. Read the instructions. Use it the wrong way. You're going to destroy it. And that's obviously silly, but we do things like that. God is saying that to us. Read the instructions. I made you. I will tell you what life is about. He, he told us in his word. He gave Adam and Eve to start a job. He gave them a job. He said, have dominion over the world. A rather broad mandate, right? Everything. Uh, subdue it. Being made in God's image qualified them, enabled them for this task. They were going to multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. And they started with one spot in the garden. Chapter 2 talks about that, verse 15. He, he gave them a task, just start here. Tend the garden, keep the garden name the animals, those things. And under God's authority, he entrusted the world to us to care for it, to produce life, to work, to care for what God has made. So God is delegating authority to us, but he's still the one in charge. He's still the one setting the rules. Uh, have you ever babysat or been babysat? <laughs> Perhaps by an older sibling or as the older sibling. Um, does the older, do, does the babysitter, do the older kids have authority when the parents are gone? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Small kids, do you have to listen to the older kids? Yes, you do. Do the older kids have the same authority as the parents? No. No. <laughs> what happens when the parents come home? A reckoning, right? Both ways. Younger kids, did you listen to the older kids? Older kids, did, did you rule with a heavy hand? <laughs> um, and, and it was that way with Adam and Eve. They, they had delegated authority, but they were not the king. They were like the local mayor. <laughs> and they, they had a job to rule and to care for, but under underneath the king. So God was still the king. And God gave them a restriction. He said, guys, I'm going to make it real easy for you. Okay? Just one tree. Just this one tree. You have everything. You have the whole world. Just one. Don't eat from this one. He gave them a trial, a probation, people have called it. And he, he was testing them to see whether they would choose to obey. God was the one that set the penalty. And he executed it later when, when he did cast them out. And some people ask and they say, but why though? Why the tree? Why did God make the tree? Uh, what was this all about? And just standing back, just remember that the whole thing 
was pure grace. Nobody asked him to create us. He chose to create this whole world out of pure grace, to to create us to know him, that he would dwell with us. God made us not because he needed us, but so that we would know and love him. Creation is God sharing himself with us. Okay? And he decided to do it this way. Revelation 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God made us to know him. God made us to love him. He made us to care for this world that he made. And the main point is not so much the contents of them caring for the garden as much as the bigger picture of God is the one that gives us our mission. God is the one that gives us our meaning. Okay? In two ways, this makes us accountable and this makes us authorized. Because he's the one that defines what we do, he's the king, we are accountable to God. We are not free just to do whatever we want. He decides the boundaries, just like he decided to put a tree. Also, this makes us authorized. We are free. We are free to do what God has called us to do. So first, we're accountable. God is the one that we will answer to. Uh, he, Romans 2.16, again, that same passage that talked about conscience, it says, God will judge the secrets of men. The secrets of men. <laughs> he knows everything about us. He knows all of our secrets. He knows all of our deeds, even our thoughts. We will answer to him. What he thinks of us is what matters. I don't know if you've ever played baseball. Uh, I have not. My, some of my kids did for a bit. But imagine at a baseball game or a soccer game or whatever game the kids are playing where there's parents present. Um, you've got like the guy in the crowd calling out, uh, making calls that contradict the empire. It's like, no, that was safe. That was a strike. He's out. Um, the, the guy on, in the seats doesn't get to call the shots, right? I said you're out. Get out. It's like, umpire said it was fine. They don't have to listen to this guy. Uh, the people in the crowd don't get to make the calls. Only the umpire gets to make the calls. He gets the only vote. The umpire is the only judge. He, he I think, uh, he gets to decide. <laughs> so no matter how we think we've got good ideas, that we're basically good people, our vote does not count. No matter how much fun temptation says it will be, how much fun friends say something is going to be, that no one will know, everything will be okay, God's the empire. We are accountable to God and to God only. We're also authorized, though. We are authorized to follow Christ because God wrote the instruction manual. And things must be used as designed to work well. Like using that boomerang as a vase also is not going to work too well. Just like trying to use a vase as a boomerang. Um, we spend so much time, don't we, taking instructions from other people rather than from God. Also with kids, I have kids, I like to talk about my kids, sorry. But you have kids, sometimes I tell them what to do, go wash your hands, it's time for dinner. And then another, one of the other kids says, finish your turn first, and then we'll go wash our hands. And then that child is in a moment of conflict. Do I listen to my dad that told me to wash my hands, 
or my brother that said, finish my turn in the game before I go wash my hands. I'm like, listen to me. Don't listen to your brother. Right? When God, and that happens all the time. God tells us what to do, and then the world says, no, do this. But we are authorized to follow God, to say, no, my dad told me to. I don't have to listen to you, brother, uh, my brother. And so we are free to listen to God. And friends, this is so freeing. It is so freeing to know that, that God spelled it out. We don't have to figure life out. We, we can tune out the contradicting voices and we can follow Christ because he defines us and he decides what we should do. Okay, look with me at chapter 22. Point number three, he, he, how did he make us? As we look at the fall and some of the effects of the fall and the fear of man that we were talking about yesterday, this is all tied in together. Chapter 22, at the end, if I can make you all feel awkward for a little bit, verses 22 to 25, it says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Humanity started out naked and not ashamed. This is kind of interesting. I find that interesting that that's how he ends Genesis chapter 2, this portrait of of creation nowadays right rightly so nakedness is one of the most embarrassing things right many people have reported bad dreams the the like the epitome of the bad dream is you're at school or somewhere at your job giving a presentation and whoops you have no pants on or something right that is that is the bad dream um in paradise though there was no sin. There was no reason for shame. There was no ridicule. There was no impurity. There was no fear. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. What happened as a result of the fall? Genesis 3, verse 7. We already read verse 6 earlier. Verse 7, what happens immediately? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is like a central part of this narrative, the fact that they were naked and then the fact that they were trying to hide it. Um, I find it fascinating. The rest of the Old Testament goes on and we see the phrase often, shameful nakedness. This is inherently tied up with uh, this stark contrast of how pure, innocent, we were originally in the creation, and as the result of the fall, eyes turned inward on themselves, 
and produced this uh, fear and shame. Fear and shame were this result of the fall, not part of the original creation. I'd like to take a bit of a tangent, if I may, while we're here, not too many times over the week, but to talk about relationships. Um, I think it's important to talk about. I think it's it's so closely tied up with fear of man, is relationships between between boys and girls, is the way that lots of people go wrong here uh, with, with life. So much of pain in life is because you're doing it wrong. You're not following the instructions, and it results in so much hardship. We see here at the beginning that marriage is a wonderful and it's a beautiful thing made by God, given to us. A relationship between one man and one woman for life where there is complete openness, complete acceptance, complete unity together. And lots of kids and lots of adults, may I say, get into relationships for all the wrong reasons. For status, for fun, for enjoyment. They say things like, I want you to make me happy, which is never going to work, by the way. That's a recipe for a bad relationship. Because no one can do that. And we seek this kind of intimacy, this kind of unity at our own peril outside of marriage. We seek this relationship for our self-centered gain rather than for a life of commitment, service, love, and openness also to our own peril. Also, much of our shame in life, mine, uh, is related to sinful pursuit, sinful desires with respect to relationships. And so at the beginning, I just want you to know there was zero shame, zero fear, There was a relationship unhindered by sin, and we should esteem this. This is how God intended marriage to be. And the main point, though, from from this passage that I want us to bring out is that fear, this was an effect of the fall. The original creation was almost shockingly fearless, shockingly shameless. Um, And all three categories, shame, rejection, threat, danger, these all came from here. They covered themselves The openness was gone. They were pointing fingers and blaming. And then they were hiding from God's presence. And so, friends, what God thinks of you is what matters. What God thinks of us is what matters. He created us. He defines who we are. He defines what we're supposed to do. And he made us without shame. You are not an accident. You are not a bunch of atoms. You are not how many friends you have. You are not your body. You are not your muscles or lack thereof. (laughs) You are not how you look. You are not how smart you are. You are not your grades. You are not how much Bible you've memorized. You are a creature made in God's image. God designed the world. God designed you. He designed everything so that we would know him. If we want to understand ourselves, we must go to him, not to our neighbor. Our neighbor doesn't know. God is the one that knows. We've got to get our focus off of ourselves and ask, what does God think? Amen? That's what we'll be doing. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you 
made us. You designed us. You created us, and you made us in your image. What an amazing privilege and honor that is. Help us, God, as we as we point our eyes towards your word to learn what it says about us, because you're, you wrote the manual. You were the one that made us. We ask, God, that you would help us as we endeavor to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.